this morning, just have a, an announcement from the elders that I'd like to read out. So, yeah, so this is just a statement from the elders for the church family. And, and it says, as elders, we want you to know that even in the midst of these changing times, the Lord is in control and has in his wisdom seen fit for these events to transpire. He is in and among all that is going on. We can trust in him. He is working all this out for his own glory and for our good. And at the same time, we are aware that the Lord of his church desires his people to continue to gather. Even though this morning and for the next little while we're in several remote locations and small groups around Havelock, Hastings and Flaxmere, we're still all one. United by our love for Christ and his immense love for us. But we note that even this may change as things develop further and potentially in future weeks that that may even stop for some period. Um, but as elders, we are mindful that the Lord would want us to continue to make use of all the available means of grace, which is, I think we know well, there's fellowship with each other um, during the week as well as on Sundays as we're able, um, prayer, sitting under the preaching of the word of God and communion. And that really is how God, that's the means by which God works his grace in us. And so this really is the time to excel even more in the biblical one another's. So please remain committed to ensuring that you're not alone or lethargic when it comes to Sunday mornings because it's still the Lord's Day, even though things are so, so different. So if you know of people who are, physical, um, who are physically well and yet not meeting up with others on Sunday morning, please invite them over um, to the different locations you're meeting in and the different hosting places where you're gathering in small groups. And for those of you who are more vulnerable to the illnesses and any severe symptoms, and we've even heard just in the last day or so for those 70 or over, we want to be caring for you, ensuring that you're well looked after, and, and while you may be isolated, that you're not alone and that you have fellowship by different means. So please communicate with us as well and let us know if, if there's any way we can help you. Things will continue to change, and this is all very fluid at present, but one thing that must remain is our commitment to Christ and our commitment to one another and the church family at Riverbend. So now, more than ever, it's crucial that you are receiving communication through the church email, and I think I mentioned that in the welcome as well. So if you're not receiving those emails, um, please let us know so that we can, we can communicate with you and let you know how things are going and, and what's going on. But if you can open your Bibles now to the book of Titus. Um, Open your Bibles to the book of Titus, and it's chapter 3, those passages that we read out earlier. We'll look at that shortly. But there are some days that are more memorable than others. And one such day in my memory was on Tuesday, September 11, 2001. And I remember the room I was sitting in while I watched the TV on the news. I remember the color of the carpet. I think it was green. <laughs> it was terrible. But I remember the furniture in the room, and I remember the TV in the corner. I just have a, a vivid memory of that day and that morning. It was as if the whole world paused and was in shock. Nobody quite knew at the time what was happening and what the implications would be. That day has lodged in my memory, while hundreds of other ordinary days have just, just been forgotten. And these last few days, I don't know how you feel, but for me, these last few days have felt the same. There's a sense that there's something of historical significance happening, that these are days that we will remember. But my prayer this morning is that in time, when you look back on, on this day, this Sunday, you won't just think of the coronavirus. You won't just remember that the church wasn't able to gather together for public worship. 
My prayer is that as we open the word of God today and look at this particular passage, you're going to look back on this day and think, that was the day that I learned two of my most favorite words, and those two words are monogistic regeneration. And, and they, it might sound silly, but they, they, these are just great truths, and, and it really is. And so I want, I want you to look back and think, that was the day that my understanding of the gospel and the grace of God just exploded on my mind and just took my worship to another level. You know, that my appreciation for my Savior took a huge step forward, and that I felt as if I'd grown from a child into an adult, that I'd progressed from the milk to the meat of the gospel. Because that's what these truths do for us as we start to understand them and grapple with them. So I want you to know that what we have in front of us this morning is very important. And for this short time, and without, and I don't want to take away from the seriousness of everything that's going on around us as well, but I am this morning for this time jealous that your attention would be on the Word of God. And so if you can look with me now at that passage that, uh, in Titus chapter 3. Verse 3, it says, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of, and here's our word, regeneration, and renewing by the Holy Spirit. And so that word regeneration is only in two places in the New Testament. It's here. Uh, the other places, I think it's Matthew, Matthew 19, 28, and it speaks of in the regeneration when, when, um, when Christ will sit on his glorious throne. And, and that regeneration speaks of the regeneration that the world will be renewed, that creation will be renewed, which makes this word here, regeneration, in verse 5, the only time where this is explicitly mentioned, but it's a particularly uh, wonderful truth when we understand what it means. And we'll hopefully see that later on as we go through. But the outline for today, we have three points. The outline, um, the first point is going to be sin, and, and I've called it the ultimate disease. The second point is going to be salvation, and we're going to look at the ultimate argument. And the third point uh, is, is going to be monogistic regeneration, those two words that at the end of the service I'd love everybody to know and enjoy, and, and I've called that the ultimate solution. And so the first point of sin being the ultimate disease, and we see this in verse 3. We're told in, that, in verse 3 there, it just lists, it just catalogs um, the characteristics of an unregenerate person. And I use that intentionally because regeneration is obviously the opposite so it's an unbelieving person, an unregenerate person. And Paul reminds his audience to remember, in the first words of verse 3, it says, we ourselves once were. And so he, he's gone from addressing earlier in the book of Titus how we do things in the church. And then he's, he's now in verse 1, even in our scripture reading before, we, we saw that we were, it turns his mind to even how we relate to the governing authorities and, and the people around us. And he says, we ourselves once were just like all these terrible things that he's about to list. And so he's not setting us up you know, to proudly stand in opposition to unbelievers and to see them as enemies. We don't look at them with a, a hostile kind of attitude. But he says this to remind us that we walk humbly and with compassion towards them because we ourselves were once in the exact situation. And so that's, 
And after that, he starts to list these seven characteristics. So the first one is foolish. And this means that man prior to regeneration is foolish in the sense that he doesn't understand. Uh, Paul explains his own meaning in 1 Corinthians 2.14. And he says, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he, listen to this word, he cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised or they're spiritually discerned. He doesn't have that spiritual ability to understand the things of God. And that word cannot is such a key word. It means that the unregenerate person is unable, not capable, or doesn't have the power, whether by personal ability, permission, or opportunity. He just, and he just cannot understand spiritual things. In Ephesians 4.18, it speaks of unbelievers being darkened in their understanding. And it speaks of the ignorance that's in them. And in Romans 1.21 and in verse 28, it says they became futile in their speculations. That's again, that's their mind, that's their thinking. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And in verse 28, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over. Imagine, this is a terrible thing. God gave them over to a depraved mind. And so that's, that's the thinking. That's the first characteristic. The second one in our, in our verse here is disobedient. And in Romans 8, 7, it, it, it helps us understand this particular word. It contrasts those who walk according to the flesh and those who walk according to the spirit. And he says the natural or the unregenerate man, he says the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile toward God. So that, that, the unregenerate person is hostile toward God. And that word means, and hostile, it means that it's, it's the opposite of pleasure. So it's something that's like odious. It's, they're hostile it's, it's enmity, it's, it's a hostile hatred towards God. It says, for it does not subject itself to the law of God. So unbelievers do not subject themselves to the law of God. And the word for um, not subjecting there, it means that they do not obey. And it's a, mili a military term, meaning they don't rank themselves under. They don't fall in line under the law of God. They, they just refuse to be ranked under it. They they do not subject themselves to God's law, God's commandments. And it even says there, it continues on, um, they do not subject themselves to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. The next characteristic in verse 3, it talks about unbelievers being deceived. And it means that they wander um, or they're led astray. And in Isaiah 53, verse 6, it says, All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way. And you could say everyone does what's right in their own eyes. They, they don't follow God and they wander from God. They go the opposite direction. The next characteristic there, it says that unbelievers were enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. So it means that the unregenerate man is described as as we saw last week, is being enslaved. His desires rule over him. He can't drag himself away from sin. He's perfectly owned and follows the desires of his sinful heart. And he can only act in accordance with his sinful nature. He's bound in that condition. And the word for pleasures is similar to our English word where we get the word hedonism from. And so that, that we're enslaved to that sinful nature. The next characteristic in verse 3 is malice, which just means wickedness, and it's just a general term for wickedness. And Paul finishes by describing the unregenerate as being full of envy and being hateful and hating one another, which is the opposite of our commandment to love one another. And so last week we looked at the depth of original sin, and we concluded 
Uh, much in line with what we've seen here, that man was born with a sinful nature. He was born with a sinful heart. He had a corrupt will. Even our wills were corrupt. And that our will was in bondage to sin, so much so that the Bible even calls us slaves of sin. And in a single word, we summed up that doctrine of original sin by saying that man is unable to come to God. And so I hope what we've looked at just now in this first verse, we've even strengthened that position, that you've seen for yourself that the Bible uses those words, unable, not even able, cannot. And so last week, um, and so I do, I'm stressing that and even building on last week because this doctrine is so important to understand what our salvation looks like. If If we're not in that condition, our salvation looks very different and is is less. It doesn't give us what we need. Um, But last week we looked at some objections as well. So when we say these things that an unbeliever is unable to come to God, it it just raises so many questions. And I want to look at another one. And this is the objection. It says, how can someone be held responsible? And that's the key word, responsible for something that they are unable to do. And so responsibility talks about being culpable or being blameworthy. If, if I'm unable in a sinful nature to obey God, to understand God, to come to God, how can I be held to account for my life? How can I be guilty? How could I be justly punished? And so again, I want to I use what Jonathan Edwards argues because so many people stumble at this point that they say that doctrine of sin that causes man to be unable, I've got to throw it out. I can't accept it to be true. It's, it, just, I just, it just doesn't make sense. And, and so many people do. They, they jettison that doctrine, which is so clear and so biblical because they can't get their mind around it. And Jonathan Edwards, he came up, I've shared this with the men's leadership group, but I want to share it with everybody here this morning. He came up with a distinction. He said there's two types of inability, two different types. And he said one is called a natural inability and one is a moral inability. And he, and he writes, he says, let common sense determine whether there be not a great difference between these two cases. And so he's going to give two illustrations. And he, and he uses some quite um, antiquated language. But uh, I read it to my wife and she said it's quite fun, you know, so just, just go with that. So I'll do this. So try to follow with me. I'll try to explain it. But he says, firstly, so imagine, imagine the scene that he's giving. Firstly, a man who has offended his prince and is cast into prison. And after he's lain there a while, the king comes to him, calls him to come forth to him and tells him that if, if he will do so and will fall down before him and humbly beg his pardon, he shall be forgiven and set at liberty. And just imagine the parallel with the gospel coming to a sinner. Um, he'll be set at liberty if he just repents. And also, he'll be greatly enriched and advanced to honor. The prisoner, this is his reaction, the prisoner, he heartily repents of the folly and wickedness of his offense against the prince, is thoroughly disposed to abase himself and accept the king's offer. But, and so he, he, he responds, he humbly does exactly what the king says. He wants, to, he, he wants to be free. He's done everything that was asked of him, but... He's confined by strong walls with gates of brass and bars of iron. So this first one is a natural inability. It's the first kind of inability. And he physically cannot get out. He's locked in. There's a physical restraint that stops him from from getting from where he wants to be. He's just unable physically, naturally to, to, um, to free himself. And see, if God was to offer the gospel to unbelievers who were unable in that sense, Edwards argues that God would in fact be a monster, that that would be a terrible thing for God to offer offer the gospel to people that physically couldn't even 
Does, does that make sense? But he looks at another, he looks at another type of inability. And this, this gives a better picture of the unbeliever. It says, secondly, a different situation. A man who is of a very unreasonable spirit, of a haughty and ungrateful, willful disposition, and moreover has been brought up in traitorous principles, and has his heart possessed with an extreme and inveterate enmity. And so we saw those words, eh? the hostile, that enmity that sinners have towards God to his lawful sovereign, and for his rebellion he's cast into prison and lies there long. He's laden with heavy chains and miserable circumstances. At length the compassionate prince comes to the prison, orders that his chains be knocked off and his prison doors be set wide open. He calls to him and tells him, if he will come forth to him and fall down before him, acknowledge that he's treated him unworthily and ask his forgiveness. He just has to repent and acknowledge his sin. He shall be forgiven, set at liberty, and set in a place of great dignity and profit in his court. But this is the reaction of the second person. He is stout and stomachful and full of haughty malignity that he cannot be willing to accept the offer. His rooted strong pride and malice, that's another word in those verses that we looked at, his rooted strong pride and malice have perfect power over him, and as it were, they bind him by binding his heart. And the opposition of his heart has the mastery over him. So he says, a man's evil dispositions may be as strong and immovable as the bars of a castle. So in the second illustration, that the chains are knocked off. There's no physical restraint. But because of his hatred of the prince, the one offering, his heart has so much mastery over him that he cannot make himself willing to accept the offer. And that is the type of inability that the Bible pictures, it's just as strong and it makes you just as unable. So, it's, so there's a natural physical inability and there's a moral inability. And sinners have a moral inability to be able to accept the gospel and to come to God in and of themselves. And so what that does is, that picture that Edwards makes with those two illustrations, that means that an unregenerate person is both unable to come to God, unable to humble himself, unable to accept the gospel, and he is still culpable. The the moral inability is a blameworthy type of inability. And so what you have, what you have there is that that, that distinction that Edwards makes, it, it just it masterfully unties that apparent contradiction and all the grand objection that's raised against us using the biblical doctrine of sin, saying that man is unable, it just crumbles to the ground because that, that type of inability is, is yeah, still unable and, and culpable. So I think I've made that point. But, the, but that's why I've called this first point sin the ultimate disease. Because in sinful nature, we're in a very real sense unable to understand spiritual things. We're unable to come to God, unable to subject ourselves to the law of God, and yet we're still responsible. And that is, that is the worst predicament I could imagine. Sin truly is the ultimate disease. So we're trapped and blameworthy. We're helpless, but we're not victims. And in truth, sinners are hostile enemies of God that cannot make themselves willing to come to him. And when our sinful nature is understood like that and in those terms, that's the biblical doctrine of sin, of original sin and of total depravity. When we understand the biblical teaching, we understand how deep sin goes. 
And we don't just need some good advice to point us in the right direction. So we'd call that moralism. We're not just telling people to live better lives and, and, and clean themselves up a bit. We need more than that. We are utterly helpless and we need something greater than ourselves. We need something outside of ourselves, external of ourselves. And that biblical picture of sin is what puts us in a state. And the Bible starts to use words like this, that we were saved. We need a rescue. That's, unless we see the biblical doctrine of sin, we don't even understand what it means to be saved. We don't even see a need. And I've been pressing against this argument this idea of free will, because if we maintain that and we entertain that way of thinking, we're not really enslaved. We're not really in bondage. We're not really unable. We're perfectly able to, to come to God, to sin, and it just undermines the biblical doctrine of sin. And so that's why I've been pressing those truths in a few weeks. But what we really need when we understand our sinful nature is we need a new nature. That's the cure that we need. We need God to, to do more than... We need him to actually change us from the inside and renew. And the word that I want you to understand this morning is regeneration because it's that word that speaks. Regeneration means that new nature that we get, that we are a new creation, that God changes us from the inside. That's what regeneration is. That's, that's the term we need to understand our salvation and what God does for us. And so, so that's, that's my first point. That's, that's seeing sin as the ultimate disease. And, and I just want you to tuck it away in your mind. And that's going to be the first piece of the puzzle. And we're going to see several pieces that we need to fit together to, to untie some difficult things. And the first piece of the puzzle is that the biblical doctrine of sin and we are unable. So the second point is salvation, which is the... The ultimate argument. And you know, it's sad that I've even put those two things next to each other, that we see salvation and then an ultimate argument. But to be honest, this is such a point of division and confusion. When we talk about our salvation, it is understood so differently. But I want you to understand the second point as, as brackets, as like a parenthesis. There's the first point is our, our doctrine of sin. The second point is we're going to look at this argument that confuses people about uh, our salvation. And the third point, we're going to look back at our text and see verses 4 and 5, and we're going to, it's going to help us understand the problem. So, so we're going to um, look at the argument. And I, I want to do this as, as briefly as I can. But when we think about our salvation and when we open up our Bibles, when we read our Bibles, we're presented with two, and it's apparently contradictory, sets of Bible verses. It seems to talk in two different ways. And this is what people trip over each other. Some verses say that we chose God, that we are saved because of something that we did. And other verses say that God chose us and we are saved because of something that God did. And, and when people look and emphasize different verses, we have two different perspectives that start to play out. And so this is the first type of passages. You know these, John 3.16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And this text in my Bible, it says, whoever believes, and that is something that we do, we believe. And in Romans 10 verse 9, it says, if you confess, this is something that people do, 
they confess. It's them that confesses their sin. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you do something, you will be saved. Uh, John 1 verse 12 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed, and so we are attributed with believing and receiving, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So that's the first group of verses. These verses say that, um, and, and, and I think that makes sense, they, they emphasize the things that it looks like we do in our salvation. And, but there's a second group of texts, and I want you to look at them. In Acts 13 verse 14, and this is in response to the bold preaching of Paul and Barnabas, it says, And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So God appoints people to eternal life, and then they believe. And so you start seeing people emphasizing, God appointed us to eternal life. That's Acts 13, 48. In Ephesians 1, verse 4 to 5, it's speaking of God again, and it says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. This is something he did. He chose us, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us. Again, God's action for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. And guess what? It wasn't according to our will. This verse says it was according to the purpose of his will. His will, his intention, his choice, his doing. And so Second Thessalonians 2.13 says, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because, and, and see who's acting in this one, God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. And so you can emphasize these verses. 2 Timothy 1.9 speaks of God who saved us and called us with a holy calling. And he literally says, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus. And, and he did it before the ages began. And so you see that God is the one that's doing it. And then in the other verses, it's, it's us. And so that's, that's the tension. And so... I, I trust you can see the problem and that it just mixes people up, young and old, and, and it's, just, it's just confusing, muddling, and it's a constant and ongoing problem. That one group of texts says, yeah, emphasizes our work and the other emphasizes God's work. And so what we want to look at is how are we to correctly correlate? How do we fit together all of the biblical teaching. We can look at one group of texts and say, that one's right, and I'm just going to rule a line through all the other ones. Or we can look at this group of texts and say, I'm going to emphasize these ones and, and just argue away the existence of those ones. That would be, we'd call that reductionism, where we're reducing the biblical data so that we just emphasize one or the other. And so another fallacy would be to do it, so an either-or kind of mindset. But we see both are written in scripture and we're trying to answer it biblically with all of the biblical data and say how do we reconcile how do we allow all of te te the text to speak and to do justice to all of them how is it that this could possibly fit together it looks like they're just smashing into each other but this text when we look back in Titus verses 4 and 5 we start to understand a way that we can make and make some progress so this is the ultimate argument and, it, and this, this has tied people in knots for centuries. But we, there is a way that we can understand it and make really good progress in it. So how can we, and we'll start to think, see all the pieces of the puzzle fitting together, how can we uphold the biblical teaching of our sinful nature, 
that people are unable to come to God. That's the first bit of the puzzle that we saw. And at the same time, believe that some people actually do come to God and believe in him. We saw that in those other verses. People believe they actually do come to him. And if, people, if it is people that choose God, what do we make of all the verses that say that God chose us? So that's the third piece of the puzzle that we're trying to fit together. They're, they're just... You could say that there's more contradictions in the Bible than words, it, it appears, when you're trying to fit all these things together, but they do fit together. And this morning, you know, I, many people will think, you know, there, there just seems to be something missing. I can't quite work it out. There's a missing piece of the puzzle and they can't get their head around it. And I do, I want to say, say this morning that the, there is a missing link in our thinking. And these two words, monogistic regeneration, are the missing link that helps us to reconcile biblically how all of these things can be held together. And so if we, if we are a people that understand and get familiar with these two words, monogistic regeneration, and I'll explain them further, we really can start to put the pieces of the puzzle together in a biblical way. And so the third point the third point we're, we're looking at is, is those very words, monogistic regeneration, and I've called this the ultimate solution. And so these are two very helpful words uh, for a very common problem. And in verse, um, verse 4, it says, so this is Titus 3, verse 4, but when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us and not, a, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. And it says, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. And so I want you to see this text is where we get those two words from. It's in other biblical places as well, but we see them in here. And so I want you to see that in, at the start of verse 5 it says, He saved us. And then there's a little, like you could put that in brackets, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. That's the end of the brackets. So it says, He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. So you see regeneration. And that means that restoring of our nature, that taking out of our old heart, putting in a new one, putting his spirit in us, causing us to be born again, making us a new creation. That's what the word regeneration means. And, and th so that's the first one. But the second part is this word monogistic or monogism. And you see the word mono, which means one. And so in that little parenthesis I mentioned there, it says not on the basis of deeds which we have done, but according to his mercy. What it's saying is not us, but him. And when you combine um, regeneration and you put the word monogistic in front of it, you're saying that that regeneration, that new nature that we get as believers is exclusively the work of God. It was not us, but his. So I want you to see and know from this text, our regeneration is not from us, but it's only from God. That's monogistic regeneration. And so regeneration is the missing key that lets you unlock this ultimate argument. It allows all the different scriptures to fall in place without compromising any of them. So the biblical doctrine of original sin and total depravity can be maintained. We can believe the biblical teaching that ends in saying that we were unable to come to God. We maintain the biblical doctrine of sin. All the scriptures that say man is unable, they're all upheld. And so um, we can see that next. 
God by his power alone and his grace alone, our text says, that we said, it's not on, our, on the basis of our deeds, but God, according to his mercy. Um, so because of a monogistic regeneration, he renews our nature, which is the cure that we needed so badly. And this renewing of our nature um, is, is, is another missing piece of the puzzle. So you have mankind unable, God renews us, and what does that mean? Now we are able. There's a change. Now we're able. That's the bit that we couldn't fit in. So we've gone from being unable. A work only by God makes us able. That's the next bit that we lacked. And then we have a new nature with the Spirit of God and the life of God and the soul of a man. We're now able to believe. We're able to respond to the gospel. And then all the verses that describe man believing, man choosing, man coming to God, they fit into place as well. Because of regeneration, now they can do all those things that the Bible says they do. They believe, they accept the gospel, they turn, they repent. And, and they mean exactly what they say they mean. We don't have to hide them. We don't have to rule them out. We don't have to believe one or the other. When, when monogistic regeneration sits in the middle, you can be an unable sinner. God causes us to be born again and then we are able to respond and believe and repent and, and come to Christ. That's, that's the pieces of the puzzle and how we understand. And so what, and if I was to summarize all of that, we are unable, God graciously gives life, that's our monogistic regeneration, and then we're able to accept the gospel. And so what, what we have then when you, I think people can understand this. When, when we have that, we call that the auto salutus, which is a Latin term, but it means the order of salvation. And if you can understand that, um, these two words, monogistic, they're just so helpful to us. We can, we can put the doctrine of salvation in the proper order and everything works well. And so, and just to make it easier for you as well, if you just remember three words at the end of today's sermon, if you remember three words, this will be the key that will get you back to it all. Regeneration precedes faith. So regeneration, that renewing of our nature, happens before we believe, before we have faith. Regeneration precedes faith. Most people believe, and this is why they stumble, most people believe that when we, that when we believe, then, after our faith, God causes us to be born again. And that causes all the difficulties. The pieces of the puzzle don't fit. They think, because I have believed, then God will change my nature. And so if you take that view, some passages of Scripture have to be distorted, ignored, and, and it just won't work. You'll be tied in knots and you won't be able to resolve it. But if you believe that regeneration precedes faith, then you'll make great progress in understanding the gospel and you have far greater clarity and everything falls into place. I want you to listen to one scripture. And, it, and it, it's so simple. It's Acts chapter 16, verse 14. And it says, One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of Lord. And listen to this. It says, The Lord opened her heart to respond to the gospel. And that's all I'm trying to say, that, that you see the Lord opened her heart prior, preceding, and she responded to the gospel. That's the order, the biblical order, that regeneration precedes faith. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. And so I want to I give you one final illustration to help you as well. And, and, and so it is quite tricky in a sense, but regeneration precedes faith. 
And, and it's very helpful for us as we think of what God did for us in salvation, because regeneration is the work of God. But I want to I give you this one illustration. I thought of this several years ago, and I can't think of a better one, but it's not perfect, but it, it hopefully will help. But I remember when my son Noah, I think he was a little toddler, so he's, he's literally just able to walk. He can hardly even get around. He's just bouncing off the walls and, and moving around the house, a cute little guy. And, and I think the illustration I had in my mind was, um, imagine if... Um, on the morning of Jen, my wife's birthday, on the, on the morning of her birthday, she's lying in bed, and I'm standing outside the door of the bedroom, and I get little Noah, and I put a little box in his hand, and it's a little box that's wrapped up with a little gift, and it's got a bow on it, and it's tied nice, and I literally put it in his hands, and I whisper in his ear, Noah, give it to your mum. Say, happy birthday, give it to your mum. And he walks in there, and he, and he gives... And he gives Jen this gift. And Jen opens it up and says, Oh, thank you, Noah. This is so great. And inside is this expensive necklace, just worth thousands of dollars. And you can tell this is a story because that's not, not the reality. <laughs> but there's this expensive necklace in this little thing. And, and so when you look at that situation, you say, you say, what just happened? Noah gave a gift to Jen. Is that, is that true? That's true. Eh? Noah gave it. He had it in his hand. He gave it. He gave the gift. But I tell you what, you know as well as I do that that's not the full picture of what happened. There's so much more that went on above and beyond and before that moment of the gift being given. And in our salvation, what you have is you have people that see in the Bible, it says that we believe in God, we repent, the gospel is preached, people respond. And those are the building blocks of our faith. I don't want to undermine them or I don't want to make them seem insignificant. The doctrine of faith alone is critical, but, but that's not all that happened, the gospel being preached and us responding. That, that's comparable to Noah. Yes, it's true, he gave the gift. It was in his hands and he gave it to Jen. But you know what? At the, in, later in the evening, Noah gets put down in his cot, goes to bed, and then Jen looks over at me and goes, Andrew, thank you so much for giving me that gift. And is, is that true? Can you say that? Because you could bang them into each other and go, that's contradictory. You can't say Noah gave the gift and then turn around and say the gift was from me. You, you can't do that. But in our salvation, you see them starting, it's more, it's, it's just, it's just, there's more dynamics at play. And so what you have is you have the husband, or you could say God the Father, he purchased that gift at great price. And... You know, I, I just don't know how to say it. The, there's just so much more. So there's, there's the, um, you know, Noah didn't have any resources. He couldn't run up to the shop. He, he just, he's limited by his physical ability. He can't go there. He's got no mind. He's got no intention. He can't, he didn't plan the birthday. He didn't, you know, he didn't even know it was his mum's birthday. He had to get told. And so there's just all these things. And so so the, the giver of that gift went and brought it, had the plan, had the attention, looked through the shop and chose it. And all those things were done before Noah couldn't even tie up the little bow on the thing, but then he gives it. He was part of the process. And so that's the picture that I'd love you to leave here from today and think, you know, our salvation, you know, I, I do believe that God offers the gospel and we respond with faith and repentance and we turn to God or we, or we reject. But there's so much more that God has done beyond us. 
He's regenerated, and he's done that by his doing, that we're in Christ Jesus, it says in 1 Corinthians, that he's done so much more, and our view of salvation is so much bigger. And I think when people confine themselves to just that little part of our salvation, it's hard for us to grapple with and understand. And so it's just been a, a pleasure, really, to, um, to bring these two words in front of you, to believe in monogistic regeneration, because... It, it really is just, it's, I, I hope you think about it more. I hope you meditate on it. I hope you jump on the internet, type them in there, look up some resources and look into it more because it will just, it will just be um, just a wonderful truth that our salvation is so much bigger and grander than perhaps what we, we, what we used to think of it. And so as we're um, thinking about the greatness of our salvation... I just want to transition slowly into a, um, a time of communion. And, and as we do this, I just, I just want to read three Bible verses that, that help us um, look at this idea of regeneration as well and what, what God's done for us in our salvation. So if we look at the first one is in um, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. And these are, these are, the Bible gives three illustrations of regeneration. It, it shows us by word pictures what, what God did for us. And so the first is in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6, and this illustration is a new creation. Um, and so in 4 verse 6 it says, for God who said light shall shine out of darkness. That's, imagine there's nothing. Creation is black. And God said out of nothing let there be light. There's a new creation. That's what God did in our hearts. That's the picture of regeneration. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Do you know, that picture of creation is that God regenerates by his doing, monogistic. He switches on the lights. We can see and then we believe because regeneration precedes faith. The second um, picture is in... Um, Ephesians 2, uh, verse 1 to 5. And this, this illustration is a picture of new life. And it says, And you who were dead in trespasses and sin. And so the image we think of as a dead person, of a corpse. You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of de- disobedience. Among them too we all formerly lived. And it lists, just like we've looked, this is a parallel text to what we looked at. We all formerly lived um, in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of our flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even like the rest. And there's that great two words, but God. Maybe they're better than monogistic regeneration, but God. Being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead. So you could think even when we were unable, what does it say? He made us alive. And so that's, that's the second illustration that the Bible gives, God giving life to a dead person. That's regeneration, his act. We were unable to act because we were dead. God's doing regeneration. The last one is the new birth, and it's in John John chapter 3, verse 3 to 8. And so so this is the, the illustration is new birth. And so we commonly say, hey, we're Christians, we're born again. Man, I hope, I hope we can see that in the, 
in a, in a better light when we understand regeneration. Verse 3 says, Jesus answered and said to him, this is to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born while he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And that refers to Ezekiel 36. It talks about being sprinkled clean, being given a new heart, having the Spirit of God being put in us. And so truly, truly, unless one is born again, regenerated, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Verse 6 says, That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. And this is the thing. You must be born again. It's not a, um, it's, it's, there's, there's only one option for mankind, and it, and it enters through the gate of regeneration. You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. And that's a picture of the Spirit of God just blowing. You can't see it. You don't know where it goes. And God alone, monogistically, causes people to be born again. It's by his doing that we're in Christ Jesus. And then when we're born again, we see and we believe. We accept our nature's been changed. And so with that in mind, as we come to take communion, I'll just pray. Heavenly Father, we we thank you for your work of regeneration. We thank you for making us new creations. We thank you for giving us new life. Uh, We thank you for causing us to be born again, to be born from above. God the Father, we thank you for the kind intention of your will. And God the Son, we thank you for humbly assuming a human nature. We thank you for your active and passive obedience, for redeeming our sinful nature, for redeeming everything that you assumed. You took on a human body and a mind and a will. You even redeemed our will And we thank you for your substitutionary atonement and satisfaction. God the Spirit, we thank you for applying to us all of the saving and renewing benefits that Christ purchased. And as we take communion, we remember Christ. Lord, continue to save, continue even today to give new life. Amen.